Ad Astra can't quite decide if it wants to be as existential as 2001 or as visceral as Gravity, but the spectacle it provides is worth the ride. That's from Ken Garrison, Mad About Movies podcast. The movie we're reviewing this week on Cinefile is indeed Ad Astra from James Gray starring Brad Pitt. And as always, thank you so much for checking out Cinefile. We appreciate the love. Please do go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep this thing chugging. And um, honestly, let us know what you like, what you don't like. That's kind of the way, like I said, this whole thing operates. Uh, Thank you to all those who listened this week to the special Emmys podcast that we dropped. Emmys, of course, took place on Sunday night. And so Joe and I knocked out a podcast 14 minutes in length uh, just a couple days ago. So that dropped. So thank you to all those who, who checked that out as well. Um, here's a couple of reviews here. High School Mount Rushmore. Love hearing you and your podcast is great. It's my Monday morning in the office. Listen, that being said, Adnan, how is Breakfast Club not on the Mount Rushmore? It's a slam dunk. Election. Great poll. Underrated movie, in my opinion. Love what you do. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much to BSKRIV. So Biskrov, who posted that on Monday. And thank you for the five-star review. My man, Brett Baker, one of my favorite series. Always listening to Cinephile. Always giving feedback. And uh, he writes, it's infectious in the good way. If you're reading this and thinking about subscribing to Adnan's podcast, stop, save yourself the time, and just go subscribe. Right now, just do it. If you're still reading this and not thinking about subscribing, allow me to attempt to change your mind. If you like movies even a little bit, this is a must-listen content. The affable Adnan Burke brings an unbridled joy to the proceedings that can't help but get you excited in whatever project he's championing. It's like the film school class we all wish we could have attended. It's fun, it's funny, it's irreverent, it's thoughtful and educational. Stop wasting time and smash that subscribe button. You're the best, Brett Baker. Thank you so much, buddy. He's awesome. And thank you so much to my man, Cabby. Of course, he was terrific, I thought, on the podcast. Uh, one of my good friends, obviously, so we go way back. And we're able to tell stories about so many different things. Joe had the job of editing it. This has never happened before, by the way. Normally, we you know we tape these and... They go 10, 15 minutes in length. Um, what was the final running tally of me and Cab yammering away, Joe? I believe it was 56 minutes. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, it was just two friends catching up. We just happened to be talking movies and about life and everything. So, you know, 56 minutes sounds about right. But And what did you whittle that down to? 30? I think you probably went. I, I didn't listen to your edited version, but probably about half that, right? Yeah, it was about 34, 35 that we kept oh, in. That's yeah. pretty good. Right, we still kept all the good stuff. Yeah. There. People loved, obviously, the Will Ferrell stories, uh, Seinfeld stories, Ruminations on Eddie Murphy, Quentin Tarantino. I mean, there's plenty of great stuff. So make sure you check that out. On the podcast, uh, this time around, we've got a terrific actor from Britney Runs a Marathon, Utkirsch M. Budkar, is going to be joining us. He's also in Brockmire. I cannot wait to ask him about the role of Raj and work with Hank Azaria, so thank you to him coming up. And as I mentioned, since we're talking about Ad Astra, the Mount Rushmore will be space movies, and the Bada Binge might be arguably the best three episodes ever in Sopranos history. All that more coming up. Let's talk first about Ad Astra from director James Gray, who's an excellent filmmaker who may not be as well known as some others, but his body of work has always been strong. And this time he's actually making something which is a lot more commercial. And unfortunately for him, the audience score 42%. People are not liking the movie, but 83% Rotten Tomatoes. So that's kind of been uh, the status quo for his career. Critics like him a lot, and the audience says not nearly as much. But um, the story is about a man journeying across a lawless solar system to find his missing father, who is a renegade scientist who poses a threat to humanity. Film's just over two hours long, and it really made me think about Hearts of Darkness and Joseph Conrad and Apocalypse Now, of course, the film upon which it was based, um, directed by Coppola. I mean, that that really kind of was the first thought to me. As soon as you see Pitt going on this journey, um, I just kept thinking of, of Heart of Darkness. Here's this guy, like you said, renegade scientist. Rather than a renegade warrior, Brando's character, Colonel Kurtz, this time it's a scientist who kind of just went on his own. And it's obviously adds much more pathos in the fact it's his father 
Tommy Lee Jones Clifford, who's known as this brilliant scientist. So you've got this whole, you know, father-son story, and it's a very ambitious film. I think first and foremost, the um, technology is fantastic. I mean, th those shots in space are absolutely mesmerizing. And at times, I thought the film was completely hypnotic and drew me into that world. And it's very self-isolating. I mean, most often, the film is just Brad Pitt and focusing on that handsome face of his. And uh, he's always been more than just a, you know, a good-looking movie star. He's obviously a really talented actor and makes excellent choices. And I thought he was really subtle in the film and, and appeared to be haunted. And I wouldn't be surprised if he gets some Oscar buzz. Hopefully, he'll get a nomination either for this or maybe for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a supporting actor because he's had a very strong year. Um, but the story follows him as he tries to go find his father. And uh, his acting is very restrained. Um, they rely quite a bit on narrative uh, voiceover as a means of telling the story. And like I said, for me, it worked because I found it so hypnotic. I will say, though, for, for some, and, and I definitely felt this a little bit, it is a little bit slow, a little bit obtuse. You know, I didn't really think that the narrative was driving forward the whole time. But again, that's what these kind of space movies are. I, I felt like that was almost the rhythm of the film was meant to be contemplative. So uh, I did see a couple of tweets. People already tweeted me going, oh, please don't tell me you like this movie. I hated it. But uh, I, I, I liked that, Astro, and I liked it quite a bit. And I'm going to give it three Maple Leafs because of the fact that it's a rumination about loneliness and, and space and still does give you those um, science you know, sci-fi thrills, although, like I said, if you're expecting Star Wars, you're going to be sadly mistaken. And even, you know, compared to Gravity or other films like that, it's just, it's very different in that aspect. But I recommend it. I liked Ad Astra. Joe, I know you saw it. I'm curious for your take. Well, I, I agree with you that Brad Pitt commands the screen. He's definitely star power personified. And I liked it. I liked the visualizations. Some of the cinematography was amazing. That opening sequence of Brad Pitt on that tower. I also have to say that, yeah, the narrative, even though with these kind of movies that you have to kind of suspend your belief, there was a few things just with the narrative that kind of took me out of the movie. So I would also give it three Maple Leafs as well, uh, mainly just because it's so visually stunning. Yeah, Chris Wasser of The Herald, he said, Ad Astra, an arty, textured space epic with a brain and a heart, has more in common with, say, Interstellar than it does with Armageddon. I think that's a very fair point. That, right. right. It feels like a Chris Nolan film in that respect, and that it's very heady, and it's very cerebral, and you're not going to get those effects. And, and I'm with you. I think that certainly at times it dragged a little bit, and you just want a little bit more, a little bit more punch, right? Yeah, exactly. And also, did you see that uh, the Natasha Leone cameo? Yeah. That, I thought she was going to have a bigger role, and then it wasn't until after the movie that I realized, oh, no, she was literally in there for that scene only. Yeah. That, interesting, by the way. I'm glad you mentioned the cast, because it's a very eclectic cast. Ruth Nega, who was really good in the film, loving. Uh, Donald Sutherland shows up, noted great Canadian. He shows up as one of the old buddies of Tommy Lee Jones. Even Tommy Lee Jones, a craggly-faced at best. I mean, he, even here, he looks very well-worn and weathered. A very random cast I found, which uh, I did enjoy seeing some of those faces. Liv Tyler shows up. When's the last time we saw Liv Tyler in a movie? Oh, yeah. I can't even remember. And this is, uh, I guess, her second space movie where someone that she knows goes off to space on a dangerous mission. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what you thought of Ad Astra. As always, you can tweet us at CinephilePod or at Adnan S. Verk. Um, and we'll let you know more about what your opinions are next time around. How about some entertainment news? TV ratings, Emmy Awards sinking 33% to a record low. That's why you need a host, baby. Hosts are always so important, not just because I am one too. I'm telling you, I just always like having an MC. They drive you through the whole thing. Fox is broadcast averaging a 1.6 rating in the key, 18 to 49. Watched by a total of 6.9 million viewers, historic low. 
a 33% ratings decline on last year's Monday night show on NBC, roughly the same on the 2017 ceremony, which also aired on a Sunday night on CBS. The show was up against formidable competition Sunday night football, Rams and Browns, which was actually a terrible game, but that topped the night in meter market households, 12.8 rating, 23 share. Another bad sign here, a gloomy sign here, Joe, for ratings and award shows as they just continue to go downhill. We'll see, you know, how the Golden Globes do and how the Oscars do next year. But again, this seems like such a hodgepodge of performers and actors just kind of thrown into the Emmys this year that it just didn't seem that engaging or thrilling, I suppose. Yeah, it wasn't a particularly strong show. Even the comedians weren't even all that funny, uh, even though they did their best. Also, nobody wants a Princess Bride remake, including Jamie Lee Curtis and star Carrie Elwes. After Sony Pictures Entertainment CEO remarked that a remake of the beloved 1987 way could be in the works, Jamie Lee Curtis shared her dismay at the idea on Twitter. Oh, really, wrote Curtis? Well, I married the six-fingered man, obviously why we have stayed together for 35 years, and there is only one The Princess Bride, and it's William Goldman and Rob Reiner's. She then added a quote from the movie to really drive home the message, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Curtis, who is married to The Princess Bride's Count Rugen, Christopher Guest, wasn't alone in her anguish at the thought of a remake. Actor Carrie Elwes, who played the lead role of Wesley in the film, also had some thoughts to share on the matter. There's a shortage of perfect movies in this world, he wrote on Twitter. It would be a pity to damage this one. I'm with those guys. I don't like seeing remakes of great films. I have no desire to see a Princess Bride remake. You, Joe? No, none whatsoever. It really is a perfect film. And it's a film that you can show a three, four-year-old, five-year-old kid, and they'll, it'll resonate with them in the exact same way. It's a perfect movie. Yeah, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Wherever Manny Patinkin goes, he still gets uh, quoted that all the time, <laughs> even though he's so great on the show, Homeland. All right, those are your, uh, your review and also entertainment news. I do also want to mention, Joe, I've been on a Jim Carrey kick, as you know. Um, you know, I watched I Love You, Philip Morris, which I'd never seen before. I rewatched Ace Ventura, and I had to watch, and then this is upsetting, I know. I'd never actually seen the sequel to Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. 24 years after its debut, I finally found some time to watch it. So I honestly thought it was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, wow. listen, sequels. <laughs> Listen, listen, sequels are sequels, right? So no matter what, you're going to get the same joke. So in the first one where he says, do I have anything in my teeth? When he's at the sunflower seeds, this time he's got like these giant things of broccoli and everything in my teeth, right? When he says, um, you know, in the original, of course, he's talking out of his ass uh, with Tone Loke. This time he's literally singing out of his ass like Tarzan, um, you know, so all, all, all the jokes from part one that just, again, are just multiplying it in part two. But I would give it three Maple Leafs. I got to be honest with you. I, I went in. That's why I hadn't seen it, right? Because I go, well, the first one, I get it. I like it. It's funny. But. I'm sure the remakes would be terrible. Now, when I watch them 30 years, I mean, 25 years later, I'm like, well, Ace and Joe, the first one is still as funny as I remember. It may be funnier just because I have the nostalgia for Jim Carrey. And the second one's pretty good, notably by this scene. You know, how can you top some of the, the outrageous moments of part one? Well, this time, literally, a rhino gives birth to Jim Carrey. I mean, that was the scene I had to wait to see. And, and thankfully, I didn't, you know, I didn't read any reviews. I didn't watch the trailer of Ace Ventura when Nature Called. I really don't know anything about the sequel except that it came out and it probably did some good business. So when I saw the second one, I was like, the, the scene where he's inside of a rhino, and then there's a couple going by, and they're saying, hey, look, look, there's a rhino giving birth, and Jim Carrey comes up and just starts groaning and grunting. I mean, that was, uh, that was hysterical. Oh, God. Yeah, that movie's so, so funny. That, that's the funniest scene in the movie. I also like when he gets hit by the, uh, the two spears, and he's just going, ah, ah, on both sides of his legs. It's so good. <laughs> Only he could pull that off. 
Yeah. And as, as Cab mentioned last time, I don't know if you kept it in the podcast, but he told me to reinvest in kidding. Again, he's, he's such a good guy. He's a loyal listener of Cinephile. He is aware that I watched the first five episodes and then I punted. So he was like, yeah, get back on it, man. It's pretty good. So you know what? I'm, I'm going through such, such a strong Jim Carrey love right now. Maybe I'll get back on kidding his show on Showtime, uh, which is a collaboration with Michelle Gondry. Let me know what you think of Ace Ventura when nature calls. Tweet us and let us know where you think that ranks among great comedic sequels. Now time for our guest. Well, you heard my review previously on Cinephile for Britney Runs a Marathon, a movie that I really enjoyed. And as I said previously in the podcast, one of the guys who I think is a real revelation in the film is Utkarsh Mbutkar. He plays a love interest in the movie. Early on, you see him as the friend, and he seems like a bit of a slacker, and all of a sudden he becomes a, a love interest rather unexpectedly. And he's a guest today on Cinephile. Utkarsh, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Oh, Adnan, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I actually, I listened to that episode and uh, thank you for your glowing review. I very much appreciate it. And oh, you pronounced my man. name right, which is pretty dope as well. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's a brown jam here, so we're going to get it done here. And, and here's the thing is, as a, a guy with, you know, South Asian family, you and I both, whenever I see you know, brown face on screen, I'm like, okay, this this I already am going in a certain direction, right? Because I'm always so fearful of the way you know, our people can get typecast. And that's why part of the reason I, I loved your performance so much is that it doesn't matter what his background is. He is exactly what he is, which is a millennial character who at first seems kind of like a lazy guy who's taking advantage of the situation, who's house sitting or dog sitting and just moving into this place, who likes to, you know, smoke weed and hit on girls and all of a sudden a love interest develops and, and so on and so forth. But you're never curious about his ethnicity and it never becomes an issue. It's never like, hey, we have this brown thing, white thing. Oh, my parents think about you. Oh, what's your religion? What's your culture? Oh, what do you like to eat? Like, There's, there's none of the stereotypical stuff you might see with a South Asian character and a Caucasian woman. So first and foremost, I just love the fact your character was so authentic. Thank you. I appreciate that. That uh, A lot of the credit for that goes to our director, Paul Downs Calacio, and our producers, uh, Matt Pluff and Toby McGuire and Margot Hand for sort of having <clears throat> the foresight and open mind to cast that role. Uh, you know, I guess you could call it colorblind, but to be open to me kind of occupying the space that is that character and sort of just letting me do my own thing and kind of normalizing what it means to be Brown on screen was, was really cool. And you kind of just said it, you know, it's, it's a very basic thing for most people. It's kind of a slacker guy who ends up being a romantic interest, but in our community in the South Asian community, it's kind of, kind of a big deal. I would say, I mean, uh, would you agree or you've taken in more content than I have for sure. So you tell me. Well, I feel like, honestly, man, you're, you're part of this new wave right now, which is very exciting. Like in the past, the, the only brown person, and I've talked to Hank Azari about this, and we're going to discuss Brockman in a second, but I'm a huge fan of Hank's, and I've met him a couple times, had him on the podcast. He's a great guy. He's, you know, we talked with the Mets and this and yeah. that. And, and, and I know he took a lot of heat from that documentary about Apu, but I told him, listen, I never had an issue with Apu because growing up as a South Asian family, you know, it was like the only brown character on screen. So I loved that pool. Like, this guy's awesome. Like, hey, he runs a convenience store. My parents used to run a convenience store. I'm like, I took pride in seeing him on screen. And I was always aware of the fact it's satire. It's a comedy. Like, yeah, okay, he's Hindu. He's got 12 kids. You know, he's a hard worker. He's ripping people off. He's cheap. Whatever it is. I'm like, yeah, it's a comedy. Like, it's meant to make people laugh. This is not meant to be an accurate representation of all South Asians. Like, that's why, you know, it's a comedy. So, 
for years, all you had was Apu. And I'm like, all right. And I had no issue with Apu. Now I'm like, this is awesome because you've got you, you've got Mindy Kaling, you've got Aziz Ansari, and I love Rami Youssef. Like, I couldn't get enough of his show, Rami and Hulu, because that's very specifically, right? And like, I I was relating so much to that as, you know, this Muslim kid. My family just moved to Jersey. So literally, I'm telling my kids, this could be you now. It's about a Muslim kid growing up in Jersey, and he's putting his faith right up there on the screen. The first scene's about how, you know, you do, you wash yourself before prayers in a mosque. Like, this isn't like, tangentially showing his culture like it's really in your face so i I honestly man i think you are a part of this new way which i think is very exciting thanks uh for any of your listeners who may have may not have met a brown person have a brown friend (laughs) just go to new jersey and i guarantee you'll make one um because that's where we go um but no i appreciate that i think there's a, a a wave coming up uh, under uh, under us too, like of younger people, like Geraldine Viswanathan is one of them, and um, Avan Jogia, and people like that who are younger, who are sort of carrying that torch, so to speak. We're following in kind of the footsteps of like Asif Manvi and Sakina Jaffrey and Ajay Naidu, and um, and it's really exciting to sort of be in the middle of it or be some small part of it. I had the uh, opposite experience of Apu. Um, which is why I think that character is so divisive in the South Asian community, which is like, I would go to school and get made fun of mercilessly for it. And it was like a real negative thing in my life, which I've told Hank as well. Um, And sort of as we've grown up, it's sort of lost that power because we've been able to sort of populate a lot of places in media and you being a prime example of that, where you are with your podcast, that it sort of lost that power at the time. It was the only thing, like you said, it was the only sort of um, entry point for people who didn't know about South Asians to learn about them. So I think in that way, it was a little problematic, but I also completely understand what you're saying, but, uh, but we're not there anymore. We've got a lot of people on TV and Lily Singh's got her own late night talk show. Now it's really exciting. Yeah. It's funny, you know, being Canadian, I grew up in Toronto and uh, me and my friend Hussein, we went up and saw Russell Peters. He was playing at um, Open Mic, which is uh, Mike Bullard yeah. was a Canadian comedian, right? So we were there, and then afterwards, like Bullard made a joke, something about terrorists or something. You know, it, it was it was offensive, but at the time, you're like, hey, whatever, man. It's 1996. Everyone's kind of making the same jokes. And the camera actually cut to me and who stayed in the crowd, and we looked annoyed, like we looked pissed off, which was hilarious. And afterwards, we see Bullard. He was like, hey, you know, you guys didn't like that joke. We're like, no, no, whatever, man. Like, hey, you know, I get it. You know, you're like, I get it. And and afterwards, he's like, oh, are you guys friends of Russell's? We're like, oh, he said, are you are you family? We're like, what? He's like, are you, are you like cousins of Russell's? We're like, what do you think? Like every brown guy knows every brown guy? Like, dude, there's like a million brown people. in Like, no, we literally go to Ryerson. We go to college. We don't even know Russell Peters. We just, we know that there's a, you know, a South Asian comic. We just want to support the guy. He's like, oh, okay. I just, I wasn't sure. <laughs> so, and, I, and I don't think he was yes. being offensive. But it's just literally like if you were doing stand-up and I went and saw you and afterwards I told the guy, oh, I want to talk to him. Oh, why is that? Well, he's done my podcast before. I just want to say hello to him. I'm like, oh, is he a cousin? I'm like, what? Like, that's what people would think. That's the first thought, right? Well, we can be cousins. I'm happy to be your cousin. <laughs> Let's talk more about Brittany Runs a Marathon. Because like I said, the, the movie sure. really hits the mark. And, and here's what else is really good about the film is, you know, you take a, this is sensitive subject material, right? Because I could imagine there are people who watch the film and go, well, hang on a second. There's nothing wrong with being big. You don't have to fit certain uh, codes or societal codes of being thin or measurements, et cetera. But that's why one of the best scenes of the movie is a scene where 
I don't want to give it too much away, but Jillian Bell is upset. You know, she's frustrated and she starts taking shots at a woman who's overweight. And I thought the way the movie handled that, because you don't want the message to be Britney runs a marathon. Britney reclaims her self-esteem and self-worth by dropping 50 pounds. It's like, no, it's, it's a journey of self-discovery. And the marathon does help. I think the film is trying to say you want to be healthy. Like the first time, you know, the whole reason she starts is because the doctor says, listen, your numbers are concerning. You got to get healthier. But this is not fat shaming. Like this is a very smart way of looking at the story and about female discovery. Yeah, I think it's very much about like typically what we say is if you change the outside aesthetically, that's all you need to do. And most of these movies, you have uh, a woman or a man who physically doesn't look the way that is the societal norm of what beauty is. They get into shape. They end up falling in love with one of the Hemsworths or somebody like that <laughs> and happy ending for everybody. But this movie is really saying like you can change the outside, but unless you're doing real maintenance on who you are spiritually and emotionally, none of that's going to matter. And the cool thing about what Paul and the producers have done here is they've populated the world uh, with characters that are usually marginalized. It's not just Jillian Bell, who I think is such a powerhouse and so sensitive and thoughtful and really just deft in her ability to make you laugh one minute and cry the next. This is a very easy movie for me to talk about because I love it. I think it's a great film. But you have Jillian, you have Micah Stock, Michaela Watkins, Rel Howery, and I guess to some degree myself, characters who have all been sort of relegated to the background in most of our careers as sidekicks or comic relief, sort of getting a chance in many respects for the first time to play fully fleshed characters um, and fully realized human beings. Um, and I think that shows on screen. I think it's, it's why people think it's a very, it's a fresh take. Um, for me, it feels very normal. It feels very New York. It feels very much like what life is, but I think um, it's a, uh, it's sort of a testament to how the world really is today. And it was, it, it's a cool, it's a really cool world and a beautiful story about sort of, self-acceptance, self-awareness, and self-love. What's it like being a part of a film like this? Indie movie, I can't imagine the budget was very much. I'm sure there wasn't uh, a lot of time between takes. I'm sure there wasn't like expensive catering. It's just like, come in, know your lines, let's knock this out, do a good job. But then for a film like that to be rewarded, what's it been like seeing the buzz, the rave reviews, you know, 90% Rotten Tomatoes, rave reviews coming out of Sundance? Give me a, a sense of what that's been like. I mean, it's exceptional. I'm so happy for Jillian. I'm so happy for Paul, our director. I'm, I'm happy for the cast. I, for sure, I live in L.A. I got hired as what's called a local hire to do this film, which means I sort of put myself up in New York and had to pay my own way. So I, for sure, personally lost money making the movie. <laughs> but um, to see the reaction at Sundance, to see the whole theater sort of laughing and crying and really celebrating Brittany and her journey, really getting behind Jillian and uh, really protecting her and wanting her to do good and cringing when she makes the wrong decision and, you know, yelling at the screen, like, do the right thing. But um, and then to be at the premiere in Los Angeles and just to hear the, the response from regular people who are inspired by the film, who are moved by the film, moved to tears, to laughter. Um, it's a really great feeling. When I read the script, I cried and I thought to myself, I was like, if this can be 30% of what's on the page, if we can get that on screen, this might could be a, a very special movie. And it just feels good that the way that it's been executed and the heart that Jillian put into it and that 
the rest of the cast and crew put into it ended up being um, paying off. You know, it's a it's a great feeling to see people um, enjoy and be moved by a story. You know, that's why we do it. It's not, you know, I'm I'm not here to like make major, you know, uh, what do you call it, like um, method acting decisions. I just want people to come to the theater and and uh, have a cathartic experience and have a good time. You know. Yeah, and absolutely. I think they do because the film was, like I said, an indie sensation. And now the great news is it's opening nationwide everywhere. So there's no excuse people cannot go find Britney Runs a Marathon. And for Paul Downs, Calaiso, I mean, the fact he's, um, you know, re- revealing some of this based on a true story, or at least somebody close to him who went through similar experiences. When that happens, I'm always curious, uh, in terms of the script, you said it was very strong when you first read it. Was there much ad-libbing or was it all on the page and you just had to kind of execute and uh, and hit your mark, so to speak? Well, Paul is a playwright. And the funny thing is, is I didn't know this, but Paul and myself and Brittany, the real Brittany, we all went to college together. Um, and uh, Paul reminded me of that before he hired me. He was like, oh, I remember you from college. You were a couple years older than me. But he's a playwright. So he is very, very deft with the word. And he is a great writer. And 99.8% of the script that you, uh, of what you see on on the screen was in the script. There were a few moments where he allowed me to sort of add my sort of improvisational background to the script. And for that, I'm really appreciative. And those moments are um, really fun and, and they turned out well. I think we, he and I would both agree, but for the most part, we stuck to the script because it was, as you said, it was strong right out the gate. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Brockmar. Once again, Brittany Runs a Marathon, available nationwide. Seriously, go check out this film. Utgarsh is terrific, in it, and yeah. the whole film really is worthy of watching. But as far as uh, Brockmire is concerned, your character is so great, and you played it so well, because Brockmire is just such a mess. And, I mean, he's, you know, alcoholic, and, uh, you know, he's made a mess of his personal life, and he's just r- ridiculous. And then you see your character, Raj, who just comes across as so charming and so pristine and so charismatic. And it's like such a great mirror image of the fact that Brockmire is you know, past his prime and over the hill and, like I said, just a mess. How much fun did you have doing that? Because, again, I've talked to Hank about it, and he was like, listen, we have no budget. We're doing like 20 pages a day. Like, it is breakneck pacing with that show. Uh, Brockmire was so much fun. We shot in Atlanta. And this is a testament also to what you were saying about how there's a new wave of South Asians and there's like more than there have ever been because I got the role in Brockmire because my buddy Hassan Minaj, uh, Hassan Minaj turned it down. Hassan's too busy and too big. And they offered it to him and he was like, no, I'm too busy. So I got the role, which is amazing <laughs> that that that's yeah. where we're at. And, um, right. and, uh, you know, I'm happy that Hassan's got that one on me, but, Hank Azaria was like shooting Brockmire. He has the whole season memorized before we even started shooting. He is so prepared and everybody on that set, like you said, shoestring budget, completely invested and committed to the show and to the, the sort of the ethos and the heart and spirit of it and being able to play with him. And again, to be able to infuse a little sort of improvisation and some of my own flair into that character was really fun. And working with somebody like Hank, who is uh, such a seasoned professional, was like a clinic. It was literally like uh, going to work while also getting a master class. So I I really, really lucked out with that role. I learned so much from him uh, as an actor that has informed and enhanced my craft um, 
since. So it was like a, it was a blessing for sure. Uh, how big a fan were you of the show prior to getting it? Like you said, Hassan was casting it. He couldn't do it. Were you aware of the show? Had you seen any of it? Did you, did you end up like binge watching it before you showed up on set? How does that happen? I watched a little bit of it. I, I was not like a, a major uh, follower of the show. I obviously know Hank's work, so I knew it must be a, a really good show. Um, but I watched a few episodes and then I just showed up and tried not to fall down and remember my lines and just tried to listen. It was one of those things where you, uh, I got the job and I was excited because the show is so well reviewed and so well regarded. And uh, it was an opportunity to work with some really great people. So I, I jumped at it. And it was, it was really fun. It was a great group of people. And I love Atlanta. Uh, so I enjoyed working there. Yeah. And I was going to say, you're a very busy guy as well, man. I'm just looking at the credits right now. So you've got free guy, action comedy about a bank teller who discovers he's a background character in an open world video game called free city that will soon go offline. Uh, I don't think I'm pronouncing this right, but Teka Waititi, he did Jojo Rabbit, right? Which just won the audience award at TIFF. It looks like he's the star along with Ryan Reynolds, Jodie Comer, who just won Best Actress, the Emmy Award in a drama role uh, for Killing Eve, and Channing Tatum. you got some heavyweights in this movie, man. This is great. Yeah, that is a a movie directed by Sean Levy, who directed all the Night at the Museum movies, and he's a, a director and also executive producer on Stranger Things, and that's Brian Reynolds, Taika Waititi, Jody Comer, Joe Keery, who plays Steve on Stranger Things, among many other things. He's so freaking good. And then myself, Rel Howery. I, you said Channing Tatum, who I forgot was even in it, but he's a badass in this movie. He's so good. And it's just a really interesting sort of new take on the action comedy genre. And Ryan Reynolds is you know, pound for pound, like, obviously, he's so funny and so thoughtful and a very intelligent guy, uh, really fun to work with. And Taika is obviously brilliant. If you haven't seen any of his work as an actor, uh, you know, all of his movies, um, uh, you know, What We Do in the Shadows, Boy, Hunt for the Wilder People, he's a master improviser. Um, and I got to do a lot of scenes with him, which was super duper fun. I think that'll be a fun movie for people to go see. I mean, I know it will. It's the type of movie that I would show up on day one to see in the theater. It's going to be really fun. I can't wait to see it. And also, just with your background, talk about acting chops. You originated the role of Aaron Burr in the development ratings of Hamilton. Is that true? That is a true statement. I'm good buddies with my this one, one national treasure named Lin-Manuel Miranda. And... Uh, We've uh, we are actually doing a run right now for anyone listening who's in New York or wants to come to New York and see us on Broadway. We have a Broadway run of a show called Freestyle Love Supreme, which is running from September to January at the Booth Theater in New York City. And it is a freestyle rap comedy show. It is an improvised rap concert. And it's myself, Lin-Manuel Miranda, David Diggs, Christopher Jackson, uh, directed by Tommy Kale, who directed Hamilton. And all of us have sort of been in this collective for 15, 16 years. So when, uh, when Lynn, um, you know, these, these small little Broadway shows that he writes, when they start coming to fruition, he sort of enlists the, uh, the skills and talents of his buddies, of which I am one of. And, uh, and we sort of all go into a room and we read this thing that he's building. And then the next thing you know, you know, we're uh, we're on Broadway too, which is pretty cool. Dude, that's amazing. That's what you know. I always tell people what's the important part of college, and I say it's not necessarily 
all due respect to the teachers and whatever they're teaching, I'm sure that there are some skills you obviously learn, particularly in the world of acting, entertainment, of course. But of equal importance, maybe the networking, right? You go there, you become friends with people, you learn them, you learn their tastes, you learn their strengths, you learn their weaknesses, et cetera. And all of a sudden you become your own repertory company. And that's you're exactly proof positive of that one hand helping the other, right? I would say so. And just the idea of like finding something you truly love. Like I would, I went to NYU, Lynn went to Wesleyan, but the way that we met is because I fell in love with hip hop, particularly freestyle rap. And I would cut class and I would go to the clubs at night and I would stand in long lines at open mics and I would just wait for my turn to rap and I would do rap battles and a producer who knew Lynn and Tommy Kale and and those guys saw me in a rap battle and put us together. And then I sort of joined that group when I was 20 or 21 years old. And, you know, 15 years later, I, you know, it's on Sunday night, it's Tuesday on Sunday night, I made my Broadway debut, which was a pretty cool, cool feeling. I'm not going to lie. That was kind of, that was very special. And to be able to do it with my best buddies of 15 years is even more. Um, there's just a whole lot of gratitude around that. I encourage anybody who's in the city or close to it to come see the show because it's a really good time. Also, you're going to be in Mulan. Is that right? A sketch? Yeah. Man, we, we were just touching the tip of the iceberg. Yes, Mulan is coming out, I believe, March of next year. Mulan, Disney, remake. I'm playing a new character. Haters going to hate, but it's a fun, beautiful, epic story. It's not a cookie-cutter, paint-by-numbers version of a Disney movie, which some people have taken issue with in terms of the the remakes that have come out. This is a new uh, reimagining of the myth um, of Mulan, and it's amazing. Nikki Caro, who directed Whale Rider, among many other movies, Zookeeper's Wife, has got such an incredible vision. It was so cool. Like, bro, I was like galloping down like a a grassy runway in the middle of the South Island in New Zealand on the back of a horse. And mind you, I didn't know how to ride a horse before I started shooting the movie. So it was like, it's epic. It's this amazing sort of sprawling war epic. Uh, I hope it empowers young Asian American women and Asian American men and uh, uh, just, you know, in general, not just Asian American, like the whole diaspora. So, uh, that was really cool. Free guys coming out. Brittany runs a marathon. I, I really should have pulled up my MDBs, but everything is cool. I'm happy to talk about the movie that's out right now. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the IMDb, I'll do it for you. I also see the Broken Heart Gallery, Mira Royal Detective. So apparently we got a couple TBDs there as well. So, dude, you're blowing up. The bottom line is this. Brittany runs a marathon. Go see it. I'm thrilled for the time. Go check out Freestyle Love Supreme right now if you're in the New York area because that sounds blazing. You and Lin-Manuel Miranda together. And like I said, man, between uh, between Riz and Mindy and Hassan and Lily and you, it, it's it's an awesome time as uh, somebody of, of South you. Asian descent. So seriously, dude, you're blowing up and congrats yeah. on the terrific film. Thanks. Jersey's not too far away. Come holler at me and come see the show anytime, anytime you can, buddy. Yeah, I was going to say, what are the dates? Because you know what? I'm only 35 minutes from Broadway, so you're right. Well, How long is it playing until? We're playing until January 8th. We open technically on October 2nd, and we play till January 8th, Thursdays through Mondays. Um, so come through. It'll it, Bring the whole family. 
I was going to say, I've got a wife and four boys, so we'll just all uh, we'll cram in the theater, take it for six. It'll be great, man. Seriously, that, that sounds awesome. Thursday through, I'm jotting it down now. Freestyle Love Supreme, October 2nd, January 8th. I'm going to come. Thank you so much, Curse. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Have a great evening. Talk to you soon. Mount Rushmore. All right. Thank you very much to our special guests, Utkarsh and Budkar. He's terrific, and Brittany runs a marathon, and obviously a very funny guy. Mount Rushmore Space Movies in honor of Ad Astra. Well, there's some no-brainers here, Joe. We're going to get 2001, A Space Odyssey. you got HAL 9000, one of the greatest villains of all time. Stanley Kubrick's space opera, often imitated, never duplicated, especially the finale. The last 15 minutes is incredible. Robert Zemeckis came close in contact, paying homage to that film. But honestly, Kubrick's film, it is at a different level. And uh, I mean, every time I think of HAL, Dave, what is it, Dave? Uh, that's definitely a no-brainer for me. Other films that are also in the mix... You know, I'd love, I gotta put Spaceballs in there, honestly, because nobody, <laughs> everyone's just thinking of these serious films, but you know what? I want a good comedy, and Spaceballs is incredible. My old roommate, Jeff Lovelock, one of my closest friends, he's memorized that film and quoted it more times than I can count. Uh, your Schwartz is as big as mine. Let's see how you handle it. So that has got to be in the mix. Um, I know a lot of people are gonna mention the right stuff, and it definitely is uh, in there. I don't know if I can put the, yeah, I might as well. Okay, the right stuff's obviously very uh, iconic film, great performances, Philip Kaufman. Very strong. And the last one, again, you think of space movies. You think I'm going to go the Interstellar? No. Gravity, definitely beautifully shot. First Man, I like a lot. But I like the fact that Joe has squeezed into this list some eclectic takes. So I'm going to go with Total Recall. That's right, baby. <laughs> nice. a, a, B, a, a B movie that's about as entertaining as it gets from Paul Verhoeven. You know, Schwarzenegger, one of the greatest lines ever said by the character, baby, you make me wish I had three hands. Uh, it's obviously over the top and silly, but it is awfully entertaining. I remember loving it. We see my brother, who's as big a Schwarzenegger fan as anybody. Uh, if it's ever on TV, I'll, I, will, I will watch at least 10, 15 minutes and laugh to myself just how ridiculous it is. The fact that guy gives birth to like the friggin' alien leader out of his stomach. I mean, there's just, there's, there's a lot going on there, but honestly, it's inspired and it's funny and it's creative and I don't give a damn. So I'm going to give you the cerebral stuff, like the right stuff in 2001, but I'm also going with a couple of comedies, Spaceballs and Total Recall. Honorable mentions, of course, First Man, which was a very good film. Uh, I thought it was overlooked, Damien Chazelle's film. I'm sure there's a few people like comedies who mentioned Galaxy Quest. Gravity obviously won Coral, uh, an Academy Award, and you can throw in Guardians of the Galaxy as well, but those are going to be my four as well. Joe, how about you? Oh, I got it. I, I'm with you on Spaceballs. That's on my honorable mentions list. But Mel Brooks, it's so good. When they're literally combing the desert for uh, the enemies, that, that's a great scene. <laughs> Just a giant comb. Just it's a so giant good. comb. Uh, my four are, yes, got to put on 2001 Space Odyssey. I, I'm torn between either Alien or Aliens, but I have to go with Alien and then I feel like people would set their phones on fire or when they're trying to tweet if I didn't mention a Star Wars movie. So I'm going to go with episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. I think that's the best one. And then I'm throwing in Fifth Element. I really, really like there that movie. There you go. Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Young Chris Tucker in it, too. Um, so I'm, those are my four. Definitely Fifth Element, Star Wars, Alien, and 2001 Space Odyssey. 
I like that we threw in like a guilty pleasure there because obviously Fifth Gary Oldman, fantastic. He's got that crazy hairdo in the movie. Right. I remember seeing Fifth Element in the theater. Yeah, I haven't seen it since, but I do remember enjoying it at the time. Uh, and good for you to at least placate the Star Wars crowd. I'll, I'll just say it's too good. You can't pick just one. But honestly, I, I like the four that I went with. Let us know where we went wrong, what you liked, what you didn't like. Tweet us at CinephilePod or Adnan S. Burke. The Butter Binge. All right, in case you're new to Cinephile, The Bada Binge is recapping episodes of The Sopranos. And honestly, we normally do about three or four episodes. This is probably the strongest three episodes may ever have been on the show. Uh, we're season five, episode 11. This episode written by David Chase, Matthew Weiner, directed by Alan Coulter. Those are all heavyweights when it came to the show. And it's called The Test Dream. Uh, very divisive episode. People either loved it or hated it. I remember thinking it was strange at the time, but enjoyed it. And over time, I love it even more now. Very Twin Peaks-ish. It's about 20 minutes of this one dream in which there's a lot going on. And it's all going on Tony's subconscious. Uh, he comes out of the dream knowing that Tony B shot Joey Peeps, which is something he suspected was in denial about. He's proved right when Chris visits his Plaza Hotel suite to tell him that Tony B killed Field. Phil Leotardo's younger brother, Billy, officially dragging the New Jersey crew into New York's Civil War and possibly sealing their doom. I'm reading from the Sopranos sessions, Matthew Zoller cites Alan Seppelmall, the terrific book, which is a, a resource here as we go through the series. While Tony B. was killing Billy, Tony was asleep and dreaming of Tony B. shooting Phil, a close symbolic match. All the dreams so far have been about what's happening in characters' lives right then and sometimes how the past informs the present. But nobody's dreams have correctly predicted something that could happen or was happening while they were dreaming. The part of the dream that most strongly affects Tony is where he imagines Tony B. shooting Phil first with a gun, then with his finger. Later on, Tony S. gets chased through the streets by villagers, an explicit Frankenstein reference, but also an expression of a general fear of mob slash mob retaliation. Tony's takeaway here is that his cousin is out of control. At some point, he'll have to fix the situation and not with a stern talking to. By the way, the whole sequence also is a classic text anxiety because um, it's following basically what you would hear about, like even dime store psychology, usually a nightmare about having to take an exam for which you didn't study. Losing teeth is another common event in these dreams, and Tony loses several over the course of the dream before the bullets fall out of his gun as he prepares to kill Coach Molinaro. There's even a sequence where Artie's encouraging to have sex with Charmaine, saying she likes it when you rub her muzzle. And as the guys write, the muzzle is interesting because now this connects back to Piomai and the fact that Tracy, the stripper that Ralphie killed, that Tony referred to her as a thoroughbred. And the fact that they refer to it as a whore, which sounds close enough to horse. And Carmela even warns Tony in a scene where Tony shows up on the horse in the dream. She says, you can't have your horse in here. She pronounces the word like whores. You can't have your whores in here. I'll clean up after that, Tony promises. You always say that Carmela encounters. This is very deep what the show is going. Later on, he's watching Chinatown playing on a TV in the kitchen bookshelf. Uh, and he explains the fact that, you know, this is just more interesting than life. Later on, he's thinking about high noon as well. He realizes he has to face this whole situation alone. And speaking of cameos, you got Vin McCasin showing back up as himself, but also Finn's father. And out of nowhere, Annette Benning. That's right. Mrs. Warren Beatty, co-star of Bugsy, who seems annoyed with her husband. It's hilarious the fact she shows up in the episode. Um, even Benning worries that her husband is going to return with, quote, just his blank in his hand instead of a gun, paraphrasing a famous line from The Godfather. The test room, if you haven't seen it in a long time, watch it again, because honestly, it is uh, head spinning in a very good way. That gets us to episode 12, which is my favorite episode of The Sopranos. It was written by Terrence Winter, directed by Tim Van Patten. It is the end of our girl, Adriana. 
That's right. Uh, as far as the other information, Tony actually gets to come home. Carmela gets a small fortune needed so she and her father can build a spec house. But you can tell that Carmela is doing this because it just makes the most sense. She's very pragmatic about it. The Wegler affair showed she'll never be taken seriously as more than just a mob boss's wife. And she realizes that Tony, I mean, Tony doesn't even say he's not even going to cheat on her. They just basically come to this arrangement. And you can tell the fact, the way he gives her a kiss on the cheek at Vesuvio, that, you know, this is just kind of a, a formality. These two are not madly in love as the way they once were. But like I said, this really episode is about uh, Adriana. In a scene that itself probably won Michael Imperioli and Drea DiMatteo their Emmys, that information at first seems to break something inside of him. This is when Adriana tells him that, in fact, she's been corrupted here by the FBI. Christopher gets twitchier throughout her story, the camera pushing in on his face until the mention of the murder at the club and what that means for the both of them gets to be too much. He turns pure animal, punching her in the face, choking her, as he did over the thought of her infidelity and irregular around the margins, screaming in a guttural voice, my God, what are we going to do? And as many abuse victims reflexively do, Adriana apologizes for putting Christopher in this predicament. They hug and weep together. It's an astonishingly raw scene. And later on, Christopher goes, and this is, again, one of my favorite scenes ever. He stops by to gas up his ridiculous Hummer. He's struck by a glimpse of a poor family traveling in a beat-up Chevy Citation. The life, mullet and all, that could be Christopher's if he flips on the family. It's more than he can bear. He quickly rats out Adriana to Tony and Sill. And it even helps cover it up by throwing us over clothes into the same clearing under the turnpike where Tony nearly executed him in a regular around the margins. Then he ditches the car in a Newark airport lot. The song that's playing, by the way, before Silvio kills Adriana is Sean Smith's Leaving California, a song whose lyrics advise driving away as far as possible. And speaking of lyrics, you know, Stevie Van Zandt, of course, is Silvio, Springsteen's main man, Bruce turning 70 this week. They, they never actually point out that except for this episode. Michael Imperioli gets to quote one of Bruce's most famous lines from Born to Run in which after he's late for a meeting, he says the highway was jammed with broken heroes and a last chance power drive. As Matt and Alan write to the show's credit, it is not followed with a winking close-up of Stevie Van Zandt. He is shot from a distance, his expression impassive. But honestly, uh, this episode is just so chilling because it just shows how ruthless these guys are. Andrea DiMatteo is so rock solid on the show. Uh, to see her character expire like that, it's, uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It's so well done on all levels, writing, directing, and acting. And then we get to All Due Respect, which is another strong episode, Season 5, Episode 13. It's the finale of Season 5. This is where... Uh, Tony S. ends up gutting down Tony B., Steve Buscemi, a shotgun before his cousin is even aware he's there. He later emerges bear-like from the trees behind his house. And Polly's the one who ends up kind of telling Tony, listen, you know where this is going. Because Tony goes to his house, he's that picture of himself retouched, and he says, you know, I look like a goddamn lawn jockey. Uh, and Polly says, that's not a lawn jockey, that's a general. And as Tony stares at the picture, you know, he loves military history. He's watching a documentary about German officer Edwin Rummel. He, he realizes he has to kill his cousin. Otherwise, there's going to be bloodshed all over the place. And we've already heard Van Morrison's glad tidings one time. He heard it again when he returns to the farm with the groceries. And think about the lyrics. We'll send you glad tidings from New York. Hope that you will come right on time as Tony comes around from the porch and executes his cousin. Uh, later on, Tony tries to solve the whole issue by telling Johnny Sack, I paid enough, John. I paid a lot. And you realize that Tony B, maybe his cousin, he's like a brother to Tony. And for you know Tony Soprano to shoot him, that really takes a lot out of him. By the way, speaking of cameos, Paul Dano is in the show. Him and AJ are friends. Uh, he, of course, terrific actor from There Will Be Blood and Love and Mercy. Later on, that song comes again, uh, Glad Times from Van Morrison, which is a great song. The third time they use it as a refrain, as Tony, always the bear as much as the hunter, literally a bear of a man, just shows up in his home. And rather than Carmela being upset with him, she says, what happened to you? Your shoes are soaking wet. It's a great episode as he gets away, as Johnny Sachs gets arrested. But they realize that eventually all crimes come to pay, especially like what happened to the lovely Adriana.
We've got just season six, part one and part two left to discuss. So we'll continue that in the bottom binge. Once again, thanks so much to Utkarsh and Budkar, a terrific actor, and he's fantastic. And Brittany runs a marathon. We'll be back next week with plenty more, including, including, folks, my review of The Irishman, which I'm just days away from seeing. We're going to see it Friday in New York City, and then I'm going to be seeing it Saturday in New York City. That's right. I'm seeing it back-to-back days and hearing a special Martin Scorsese quote. Closing thoughts from you, Joe. Anything on The Sopranos, those episodes, or the fact that I may explode when I see The Irishman? <laughs> I'm really excited for the Irishman. R.I.P. Adriana, and we'll see you all next week. And until then, we'll see you at the movies.